I knew I was a leader way back in the fourth grade when I gave James a test after showing him how to use the Dewey Decimal System. He was in the first grade. Even at the age of 10, I instinctively understood the importance of performance measures. James told his mom about me and reported me to the principal the next day, and I've never gotten over that. Forty years later, I'm still trying to figure out how to stretch employees, not get in trouble, determine the perfect performance measure, and how to manage bossy bosses. I wanted to do this podcast to place the human side of leadership right in the middle of the room. I am Dr. Don Emmerich, and this is Leadership Uncensored. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us today on Leadership Uncensored, Episode 2, Cultured Milk. We had a wonderful conversation with Hope McMath from Yellow House, and I can't even think about how to summarize this for you and give you a peek into what you're going to hear over the next 40 minutes. There was just so many nuggets to take away. I will say that you know, definitely what resonated out of this conversation was the importance of establishing leadership values for yourself. What are the values that you hold for yourself? And if you're going into an organization as a new leader, making sure you do your homework to see whether your existing values as a leader aligns with that organization. Or if you get into an organization and you start um, establishing those values for your organization and making sure that your own personal leadership values align with the organization and those leadership values are going to change. They're going to change over time, mostly because you change, you know, your leadership evolves. It should evolve and therefore your values should evolve. This is, I think, a bridge that oftentimes leaders have is that as they evolve, they have to make sure that their organizations evolve as well, or there's going to be a delta between the organization's values and the leadership values. And and that's where maybe hard decisions need that are made. Um, I think the other piece that came out of this is confidence in yourself and staying true to those values. The only thing that you have is your integrity, your character, and your values. You always have to keep your integrity and your values in the forefront and then trust yourself to know what is right. One of the other nuggets that I really took away from this conversation, again, I think it's a depiction of a leadership value. When hard decisions have to be made, is that it's your responsibility as a leader to step in and put skin in the game and to provide cover for staff when there was time to make provocative decisions. You know, during your 30-second hot seat, it's always wonderful to get so much information that comes out of that, but we can only choose one to explore. Um, and But there was one response that if you have been fully engaged in the COVID pandemic that is happening in our in our country right now, Hope was clearly addressing the COVID pandemic that is occurring in Florida. And I'm interested in seeing whether any of the listeners here will be able to pick up on that. 
Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy it. Courage, fearlessness, and having the ability to judge what is right and wrong and act accordingly are core pillars to servant leadership. Strong servant leaders are people who push through uncomfortable situations, who are willing to make difficult decisions, and who do not back down when work ceases to serve the people. The residents of Jacksonville, Florida, never realized just how fortunate they were to have Hope McMath until the day she followed her moral compass and walked away from her role as the director of the Cummer Arts Museum position in 2016. Despite a successful portfolio, the envy of many, and with an unstoppable career trajectory, it was the disturbing racist reactions from both the community and museum to her lift contemporary expressions of the African-American experienced installation that gave the city hope and introduced the world to Yellow House. Episode two, Cultured Milk, gets real about the importance of courageous servant leadership when things go sour. Hello, Hope. How are you? I'm good, Dawn. I'm really excited to share space with you today. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. It's just a crazy time these days. Everybody's really yeah. busy with so much going on, and I just so appreciate you spending some time with me and, of course, my five followers. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably larger than that. So, yes. Uh, well, one of the reasons I invited you to the podcast was obviously, just as the introduction shows, um, you know, the fearlessness that you use and that moral compass in your leadership style and your leadership values. This is hard work. And this is exactly the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is that so many times we read all of these books and these books are talking about, you should do this and you should do that. And you'll be a successful leader. I mean, those are all great, great points. And it's a billion dollar industry, the leadership, you know, book uh, sector is, but it's just hard. And we don't talk about how hard and how courageous and some of the mistakes that we make and the, and the difficult decisions that we have to make. And your story has always resonated with me because moral leadership, I think is missing in leadership these days. And I just think that you have a wonderful story to uh, tell, to remind me and to tell the listeners. So Let's talk about that. Let's dive right on in, Hope. So tell the listeners about you, the Yellow House story, your your philosophy, all the good and the bad of where you are now and how you got here. Well, I, I appreciate the invitation to be with you. And, um, you know, I want to say from the beginning, uh, you and I both had a chance to sort of watch each other in leadership in the same community for a while. And um, I was very moved by your courageous leadership. And so um, I just, I feel strongly about saying that. You were saying some things uh, at a time when uh, it felt so fresh. Uh, the honesty of a leader um, speaking to the difficulties of leadership rather than um, the spin that I think we all find ourselves having to put on it um, was really um it resonated deeply with me uh, at a time that I needed to hear those messages. So um, gratitude to you, Don. Thank you. Um, so, uh, you know, I am one of those rare birds who is still living and working in the community that I was raised in. Um, I'm a doing very much the kinds of things that I imagine myself doing even as a child. Um, art has always been at the center of my life as a, a practicing artist. And I always had the hope that that would be the field that I would work in. 
um, my practice has always involved some sort of balance between being an artist, being an educator, being a curator, um, and more recently, uh, sort of pulling an activist voice into that work. Um, when it comes to leadership, in a way, I was a reluctant leader. Um, I really um, started my career as an part-time educator at the Cumber Museum of Art and Gardens um, when I was going through grad school and just loved how I was able to combine my educational experience with my love for art and a desire to have an impact on community. So it was sort of a dream because I kind of grew up going to that museum as a child. So the idea of working there was um, really pretty cool. Uh, so I get there and I'm super happy doing that work. I mean, luckily it turned very quickly into full-time work and, and, uh, sort of assistant level leadership positions, which I didn't expect came pretty quickly. Um, and then a series of changes at the institution led to one promotion after another, all of them I accepted reluctantly. Um, <laughs> the first was that the, the brilliant woman who was my mentor and who I had a chance to learn from Jean Dodd, she was our director of education. She announced her retirement. Um, she had sort of handpicked me to be her replacement. I was still young and pretty green, um, uh, but she was determined, uh, but it wasn't ultimately her choice. So the museum <laughs> set about, <laughs> Uh, a long search. Uh, I sat on that search committee for a director of education. The search didn't go well. Uh, we had board members involved in it. And after a year and a half, one of the board members finally said, so since Hope's already been doing this in an interim way for a year and a half, why are we still searching? So it was a very sort of unsexy promotion into that job because I was kind of, you know, I was already doing it. I was already having to handle it and manage the team and the budgets and all that. So then the museum went through a reorganization a couple years after that, uh, which included a lot of layoffs, a really challenging period. And through that reorganization, there was a, a new position created, which was a deputy director position. I was just put in that position. I really wasn't given a choice of whether to do it or not. And so it meant taking on um, other departments underneath my uh, leadership umbrella. And, um, uh, and, you know, within a year and a half of that, the director was gone. Uh, there was an economic collapse. This was 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And the board was reluctant to begin a search for a new director. And so they asked if I would do it as an interim just to get us through, right, yeah. um, to buy yeah. us some time. And I, again, flat out said, thank you, no thank you. Um, <laughs> I was reluctant to take on that role because I'd seen how huge it was. It was an incredibly complicated time uh, throughout all sectors, but in the nonprofit sector and the arts sector, it was like a triple whammy. I mean, yeah. it was just a mess, right? I remember, now, I remember that time. Remember, it was so hard, you know, and we, our staff was already like really had gotten tiny and the budget was a mess. And I thought, why would anybody want to do this? Um, and I got convinced by a couple of trustees who I really trusted um, to just 
do it as an interim. It was really to be able to provide stability. By that point, I had been at the museum for, oh gosh, 15 years, maybe. So they knew I was a face that the community trusted, that the staff trusted, and that's all they were looking for. Mm -hmm. So that interim position became a uh, permanent position about six months later. So I share all of that because I actually didn't seek any of those roles (laughs) Um, and actually was at times incredibly reluctant to move from being a doer to being a leader within the organization, Um, even an organization that I felt I knew well and and really loved. And so mm-hmm. that started a journey of almost eight years as the executive director at the Cummer, uh, managing a staff, you know, that ranged from 40 to 70, um, a budget that was about a $4 million budget, uh, some major capital campaigns during that period of time, um, expansions of our programs and our spaces, you know, all the things that leaders of a cultural nonprofit do. Um, but we were also growing back uh, and beyond uh, from a place that uh, we were at when I had first joined the museum many, many years before. And um, I tried really hard to use that uh, position of power, which I recognized as that, both privilege mm-hmm. and power, both in the institution and in the community, to begin to reimagine what the museum could be and what I happen to believe strongly should be, which was more of a center of the community, which meant we had some very long running traditions as an art museum in the South <laughs> yes. uh, that was established in the early 60s. We, we had some work to do in being accessible and relevant for all people and to really take seriously what that meant. I'd always believed it as an educator and practiced it in my work. But now Mm -hmm. it became, how do you turn the ship of an institution to face boldly in that direction? And um, so during my time as director, we did a lot of things underneath that umbrella as far as changing how we collected, centering artists of color in our work, Um, doing exhibitions that had strong social relevance at their heart, Um, changing our idea of what it meant to be an inclusive institution, which meant reprioritizing everything, right? It meant reprioritizing dollars and staff time and when positions became open, not filling them the way we had always filled them. It changed what I thought our role needed to be as a community collaborator and partner, it meant um, us relinquishing power to community. And uh, so a lot was achieved during that time with um, quite a bit of support from the community. In fact, I would say significant support from the community. I mean, I think that you saw, you saw a big increase in attendance, didn't you? Oh, we did. Oh yes. Our attendance at the time, we sort of really made that as a strategic commitment um, to be a more inclusive, accessible, equitable institution. Our membership numbers went up, our um, financials went up, our um, attendance went up almost 50% in two years. And our support from 
national foundations, um, state and city funders all also increased because, again, we were, for the first time, about five years into my directorship, our demographics with of visitors in the museum finally matched the demographics of Jacksonville. I would assume within that increase in your attendance that you also saw um, an increase in new attendance, right? Like this wasn't this wasn't just your members that hadn't come to the museum in a while. No, you're you're exactly right. These are new faces, new members. Uh, new groups within the community that had not found, they had previously not found the comer to be either welcoming or relevant, right? Um, So even if we for years had been doing good work and putting the invitation out into the world that we were there for them, if a a group of um, uh, Black students um, from the north side of Jacksonville spent two hours in the museum but never saw a Black face on the staff, never saw a work of art that depicted anybody who looked like them. Uh, We recognized that was an incredible weakness. And we also had economic barriers set up for people to be able to participate with us. Um, We also had people in decision-making positions that weren't fully representative of the community. So it took, I mean, it took all of that. You know, we were kind of changing all of that simultaneously. And so as a result, the artistic program the people coming through the door um, and the the sort of social capital we had in the region began to align really for the first time. And that came with complications. Well, it certainly did. But that's the that's the contrast in this story is right. that as a change agent, as a servant leader, both for meeting the needs and the responsibilities of your internal stakeholders, whether that's your staff and your board of directors and your funders, you were also meeting the needs and meeting people where they were in the community. You saw the success of that work. I mean, everyone should have been happy with that. You were in a, in a time when there was uh, great economic despair. Art was a channel for people to connect, not just in, uh, socially, but you were becoming the hub of um, of comfort and socialization um, and a place where people can go and connect to people and to and to art. And the success was that your books were showing it, your members, yeah. your membership was showing it, your funders were wanting to fund you more. That I mean, I remember, you know, driving down the street and just seeing the external part of the museum just completely change. Like I was drawn, I'm not an arts person, you know, you and I know I'm a sports girl. And so (laughs) arts have not necessarily been a thing that I connected to, but I just remember the facelift that you made um, just going by and going, gosh, that building looks just so beautiful. I mean, Hope has just done an amazing job of making that building feel so much more inviting, even to the non-art people like me. So it, it was amazing time. Well, it was an interesting time, and that sort of change to our physical presence on the street was very intentional. Uh, We recognized that, you know, museums have always been kind of imposing exclusive institutions. They just are. I mean, they're born of the age of colonialism, um, and, and, you know, 
you tend to walk up to them and they're buildings that for some of us are very beautiful and inspiring and for many people, incredibly intimidating. And so rather than putting a lot of funding into building new building, we instead tried to really alter our face on the street and we literally ripped down the hedges, right? We got rid of that big green hedge that used to encircle the front of the museum that really served as a symbolic and literal barrier between the people of the community and our institution. And so, um, you know, that was part, that was part of that fix, putting art outside, making us physically more accessible, um, trying to lessen the intimidation factor without lessening um, that sense of awe that you get when you're coming into an institution like an art museum. So tell me about the installation that changed everything. The last exhibition that I uh, curated, and of course we had a, an amazing curatorial team there, but there were occasionally projects that I, even as the director, became more deeply engaged in. And they all happened to, <laughs> they typically uh, were those projects that really focused on um, race um, or focused on gender um, because I knew those would be challenging. And so I felt like my skin needed to be fully in that game. Um, along with the members of my team. And so the very last exhibition that I did was called Lift. um, And it was an exhibition that invited 10 contemporary local artists to put a contemporary spin on the words to a very important anthem or song um, entitled Lift Every Voice and Sing, uh, which was written by the Johnson brothers and is one of the great anthems of Black history and happened to be written in Jacksonville uh, in the very early 1900s. And so I was very interested not only in exploring the Black history of our community, which for too long had been whitewashed and swept under the rug, but I also was interested in how that history was relevant in the 21st century. And so it was a beautiful and powerful show, um, powerful especially. Uh, Artists, you know, this is the era of the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement. We had all unfortunately experienced um, the horrible arc um, of Trayvon Martin's life, death, and lack of justice in that death. And so, and it was the year leading up to the 2016 presidential election. So it was a time of a lot of um, uh, discord and a lot of people um, waking to our history and many um, choosing not to. And so this exhibition was meant to try to create a space where we, where it could be a gracious space, a brave space one where we could have the conversations that needed to be had. This was an exhibition that was about far more than the art on the walls, but it was about a public discourse uh, that we were way overdue in having in a place like Jacksonville, which has a very complicated racial history. And so that exhibition, uh, we, we saw some of our largest attendance ever. The programs were very well attended. The opening weekend was remarkable. Um, and it was, uh, by most standards, very successful, but it did hit some raw spots in our community. There were some people close to the museum, including in board leadership and with some of our donors that were really struggling with it, even though we had set upon about a six-month educational process to help people who would not be comfortable yeah. with this. I was very aware 
that we were going to provoke with this show. I mean, there was no way not to. And we weren't intending to soft pedal this. And yet we wanted to try to invite people in. And it it was challenging. And so we had some donors who um, struggled with continuing to fund the museum. Uh, We had some trustees that though they were okay with this idea early on, uh, when uh, when the rubber hit the road, um, they were less comfortable in defending it. But those were a small number of voices, but they were voices that were incredibly influential and powerful. You know, and then I'm listening to you and it, I mean, that's, that's what leadership is, right? right? right. Like, and in my mind, I mean, there's so many definitions of leadership, but I mean, in your world, in art, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you use the word provoke. I mean, this art is supposed to be something that puts you into a space that forces you to think about things a little differently or to perceive something that you're looking at in a different, in a different way. And you, and I love the fact that you were doing the education ahead of time. You didn't just, I mean, this was a partnership with your board and with those, you did the work ahead of time and tried to mitigate any of these things. Tell the listeners Mm -hmm. what happened, what happened as a result. You know, there started to be conversations in the community, um, which were great because they were conversations we didn't necessarily need to center ourselves in, where there were um, people in the community who had become somewhat public about their discomfort of seeing uh, an audience at the museum that was becoming um, uh, filled with more black and brown faces. Uh, And there were some people not real happy about that, feeling very uncomfortable. And, you know, a lot of that came through in very coded language. And sometimes it came through very blatantly. And I tried to actually be very transparent about that in the community to say, we hear you. We've got these challenges out there, y'all. This isn't hitting right with everyone. So let's do the work. Let's do the work of working through that. Yes. Um, The press picked up on a lot of that, which actually I found is a positive because it tended to elevate the conversation out of it just being about one show and about one museum. But it stood out in high relief from, I would say, a conversation that was always a lot more careful and fearful when it came to discussions of, of race and equity in, in our city. And so um, there was a series of situations that occurred where um, I was being asked to um, accept funds from donors who had been with us for a long time, but with strings attached around expectations. Oh boy. Um, I tried to be very careful about how to handle those, but also made very clear that um it was going to be okay if we lost some funders in the short term for us to do the right work. And then there, again, were just some people that um, were much less comfortable about the direction we were taking. Um, and it it began to, it was becoming clear that what I was finding the need to do, which is to wake up every day, thinking about the role of art in social justice and building community, wasn't going to be. And at the moment, couldn't be what the museum's work needed to be every day. There became a a, a disconnect um, between um, my own path and what I felt strongly the museum should be doing um, and where the museum felt like it needed to be. Uh, and so, um, 
you know, a couple board members made pretty clear that for us to move forward was going to mean to take some steps backward. And I made clear that then that meant I was not the right person for the institution anymore because I didn't actually know how to do that. Mm. Um, and so uh, I decided to leave um, without a plan. Uh, <laughs> it was it was something that was obviously I could see coming in some form or fashion. Um, but continued to have a part of me that believed I might actually retire from the Cummer Museum someday. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, and so, but it became clear. So I left uh, and left with the desire to do no harm. It was a quick departure, unfortunately. And so that I think set up some tension and confusion um, in the community. And, uh, but the museum is a, is a remarkable institution and is far larger than any one person or any Mm -hmm. one time uh, within its journey. And so uh, we all knew the comer would be fine. And so then my journey became something for a little while, much more personal. I mean, how did you, how did your staff respond to that decision? Because that was always a very difficult thing for me recently was, you know, that decision to leave, which I did not give a whole lot of time, just as yourself, but the thing that weighed heavy on me is the workforce, is the staff. Um, how did how did you go through that? How did you, in your mind, when you started thinking about that that point where you knew it was time to go, how did you consider the staff in that decision? Um, so I had taken, I had some senior staff members who had been with me for a long time. I also had a group of mid level. Uh, managers and workers who I actually considered the rock stars of the institution, um, who were so strong um, that I knew they would be able to carry the work. And there was a couple of people in particular, we had been grooming to take on larger leadership roles as we were expanding organizationally, we were just getting, we were about to get ready to go through some pretty big changes in lifting some people up into sort of new um, leadership positions. And so uh, the staff for the most part was stunned. Um, I'll be honest with you, there was, um, there was a little too much shock in it, I think, for, for most. You know, some people who obviously I worked very closely with on a regular basis could see the tension, understood the tension as much as I tried to um, house that within the director's office. It was hard to keep from those I worked closest with. Uh, so, uh, and during my transition from the time I put in my resignation to when I left was only like two weeks. So it was really fast. And so there was very little time, um, uh, to, I think, do the transition the way I would have preferred to. And that transition would have, would have been very much focused on how to support the staff how to bring uh, the donors that I had been cultivating for so many years along so that everybody would feel good and comfortable about this transition. I mean, y'all, I had been there for 22 years, you know, so even though there was a lot happening under the surface and behind the scenes for somebody who had been in an institution for 22 years to leave is not unusual. It's much more unusual that I was actually still there. Um, so it was the, the staff piece was really the most heartbreaking piece for me because I truly, uh, loved and respected and had worked many years with a whole lot of these folks. And yet 
I believed in them and knew how smart they were and how creative they were um, and mostly just worried about what that transition would look like and how it would impact them and the work that we had all put so much into. Yeah. So your compass uh, led you to step away without a plan. Um, I hear you, girl. And <laughs> but but coming, <laughs> but but from that, that freedom provides you the opportunity for clarity and to get back yes. to what yes. is right. Like, why are we doing this work? Through that time. Yellow House was created. Yes. So I gave myself time to to rest, repair, reckon. <laughs> and through that, it became very clear that the kind of work I was doing was still what I wanted to do. But it was clear that the way I knew how to do it best was closer to the ground. Um, and so uh, I did some exploration with some other organizations in the city thinking, oh, of course, everybody's going to want a piece of doing arts and social justice work, right? No, not not so, so much. much. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there, there was a desire, but I think at that moment in Jacksonville, even that concept seemed vague and very abstract to people, mm -hmm. where for me, it was so clear uh, and I had recognized through the successes we were having at the Comer that our community was hungry for it, mm -hmm. that we had artists ready to do the work, we had a community ready to accept it, and we had issues in this city that that work could help bring some solutions to the table. And so after a year, um, I opened an organization called Yellow House, um, which is created with the intention of sitting at the intersection of art and social justice it's really small and scrappy. <laughs> it's almost the opposite of the, the just beauty and grandeur and strength and history, long history of the Cummer Museum. Here I was, you know, finding a ragtag little bungalow um, in North Riverside and trying to convert it into a community space where we could curate exhibitions that highlighted LGBTQ artists, artists of color, um, artists from the immigrant community, um, but just as importantly for us to actually do work out in community um, where we would do a lot of listening and learning to find out how could we take the work that we were doing as artists and activists and impact um, food insecurity, um, impact racial marginaliz marginalization, impact issues of gender liberation. Like, could we? as a small organization, play even a small role in that. And so, so yeah, Yellow House was born and we're about to have um, our three-year wow, anniversary. So great. Uh, which is still so young and we're still learning so much. Um, and I say we, it's, it's just a very different kind of leadership. It is a team, mm -hmm. but most of the people who I'm working with are in community yeah. and it's a group of volunteers and interns. It's a tiny budget that we um, stretch and put straight into community, which means I have to do lots of little side hustles to fund the dream. <laughs> and, uh, and I am so grateful to be doing it. Yeah. I just, it's, uh, it feels right. I feel good when I wake up every day. I'm exhausted, as exhausted as I ever was uh, working at the museum, but it's, it's much more of my own doing and choosing 
and, and it's a lot of learning. And I, and I appreciate that because I've always been a student and, and that needs to be a part of my ongoing work. That's a great segue because I think that I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, part of the exhaustion is your own personal growth that you're having right. to do to, right. to, to um, experience through this. And we've been white women of power and white women in right. CEO leadership roles in communities where um, a high number or a high percentage of brown and black people. And it's very important for us to recognize our power and our privilege and walk the walk. And I think that that's something, again, that you personify so well, is that um, you recognize that power as a white woman and have used the Yellow House not as just for being able to have that space in a community, but for your own personal growth. For the listeners who don't know, Hope is in the community every single day, working with communities that were impacted by floods and who, after years, still did not have um, appropriate sanitation after um, a hurricane came through Jacksonville. I mean, this was not just about having a house. This was truly about you giving yourself and using that privilege to help others and really walk in that walk. And it's just so respectful. Well, I appreciate that. It's, I mean, some of that obviously was a surprise. Um, I certainly didn't expect one week after opening our doors that social justice work would mean hurricane recovery work. Um, But Yellow House, because we were listening to where the needs were, it became clear through some of our relationships that that recovery needed some focus and support. And so we literally could have days, and we still do, where somebody might be bringing in bags of food and a new mattress, dragging it into Yellow House for me to deliver into a community at the same time that we have an art opening happening, at the same time that we have kids from the neighborhood going into the kitchen at Yellow House to get popsicles out of the freezer because they know those are always there for them. And so it's, it's that kind of a space where the edges between community um, service, the arts, um, education, where the, where those, those edges are blurred. Like for me, it's all one thing. I often have people say, well, what does that have to do with art? I'm like, they all have to do with humanity. And if it has to do with humanity and we can do something about it, I really don't have anybody I have to answer to, to see if it fits. Um, it's the community that's letting me know, whether it fits or not. And so we believe in a model of shared power. This is not me going into a community and saying, here's what I think needs to be done. Here's what I think you need. It's us waiting until somebody makes clear to us that we have something that can be useful, not just interesting, but useful to their needs. Be that a Black artist who has something powerful to say and they need a place to say it, or whether it's a community that says, you know, all of our electric bills are about to be cut off and we're in the middle of a pandemic and high unemployment and we don't know what we're going to do. And so a bunch of us make art and we sell the art and we use the money to pay electric bills, (laughs) right? right? Like that's the kind of stuff we're doing. And it's, it is a little odd to a lot of people, but for the people who have embraced it and who are supporting and standing with us, they get it. They get it. They may not always be able to put words around exactly what we're doing, but they can feel it and they believe it. Uh, and so they support it. Talk about the, the the one thing that Yellow House has done for someone that you truly did not expect. 
Oh, there's there's a long list. Um, it, I, you know, hurricanes are on my mind at the moment because we have one as we record this uh, barreling up <laughs> to our part of the world. And so I would say one of the most unexpected is um, a man who I uh, it's a privilege to actually speak his name into this space. His name is Alton Gordon. I call him the mayor of a community here, which is the Ken Knight Drive community. And he's the guy, you know, who had his small boat going down the middle of a street, uh, saving people from their flooded homes uh, a little little under three years ago. And, you know, our, our, our relationship was first built on um, working through crisis, right? It was about helping people who had been flooded out of their homes and getting food to people and replacing refrigerators and mattresses. And through that work, understanding that he actually is a visual artist and a poet, though he had never used those words to describe himself as that. And Yellow House being able to provide a platform, not just for him to be seen as a member of a community that was in crisis, but to be able to say that they were much more than that crisis and to use his artful voice to be able to illuminate that. And so I could have never dreamed of having that kind of a relationship with someone where I was learning so much along the way um, and where our partnership is deep and thoughtful and challenging. Oh my gosh, have I messed up um, on the, on the weekly (laughs) as, as we've been um, uh, sort of doing this work together. Uh, But he would be probably right now sitting here, my most profound example. Those who are, Servant leaders also understand um, that in where there's crisis comes opportunity, and 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 so the Yellow House is a gift. It's a gift to the community. It's a gift to Jacksonville, and it's a gift to you, Hope. Um, that again, we we are all here for a very short period of time, and it's how we use that time that is very important. There's a deeper responsibility for that because. People are watching and you have influence and you have power. And so how do we leverage and stay true to who we are um, to assure that we are inspiring those that um, that are behind us and ready to take on those leadership roles as well? Hope, that was amazing. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and inspiring all of us. Um, I, I continue to be amazed at your work. Thank you. So we're going to we're going to pivot now. If you if you listen to the first one, now we have this little fun thing now um, called the hot seat. (laughs) And it was it's supposed to be a 30 second round. Now, last time we had two people, so it wasn't quite 30 seconds, but we're going to we're going to have a good time with this. So round one, there's two rounds to this. Round one is a 30 second hot seat. And in 30 seconds, you're going to answer a series of leadership related prompts uh, using less than three words for each prompt to kind of describe them. So, for example, if my prompt is the funny, I might say workplace cuss jar. <laughs> love it. Kind of funny, love it. Love it. Love right? it. All right. Did you really so, have so, a workplace cuss jar? Do you really have one? No, but I wish I would. I love it. That's a great idea. <laughs> I should have. I put it that way. <laughs> I was about to say I could use one of those for sure. <laughs> at my at my last position, I introduced myself as someone who loves to cuss. So, you know, that mm-hmm. is just a part of my vernacular. Um, and then round two of that is um, an uncensored round where I might choose one of your responses from round one 
And then we're going to need to explain that a little bit. For example, if you say freedom for the redemption prompt, I'm going to loop back around and I'm going to ask you to explain why you chose that and what, what that prompt was all about. So round one, let me give you the, the list of what those prompts are. The good, the bad, the funny, the ugly, the worst, the best, the kick-ass, the lesson, the redemption, the cry, and the embarrassing. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get this going. The good. Um, Elevating artists. The bad. Disaster preparedness. (laughs) The funny. Eggshells. Uh The ugly. Bless your heart. Oh, God. If you're from the South. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to keep going. I do. The worst. The worst. Um, Most Black Lives Matter statements. The best. Having no plan. Kick ass. 100 days project. The lesson. Standing with and not for. Ah, that's awesome. Redemption. Yellow House. The cry. Uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Nice tie-in from the last podcast. The embarrassing. 27,342. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to pick from any of those. I'm, like, I'm not supposed to be reacting to any of those during the <laughs> Uh, okay, I can't help myself, okay. but I just I just have to ask. The, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Right, the fact that I put that under ugly might surprise some people. So here in the South, you often hear people, especially if they've been in the South for a long time, uh, when things get challenging and difficult in a conversation, or they don't like something that you're doing, which is typically the case. The response is often. Well, bless your heart. (laughs) And when you hear bless your heart, you actually know they are truly not trying to bless your heart. It's, uh, yeah, it's sort of a... mm, It's called a microaggression. Oh, it's it's micro and and, uh, depending on the heaviness of the drawl in which it's delivered, it can be macro. So yeah. So bless, bless your heart. Bless Ble- your I heart. heard so many bless your heart. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. I could go on for, for another hour with you, Hope. Um, if you could turn back time and talk to your 18 year old self, what would you tell her? Um, I think I would tell her, um, to believe more fully um, in her own worth, to trust her instincts. Um, it felt like it took me an awful long time to have the confidence uh, to, to trust myself. Um, there's so much noise in the world and there's so much brilliant advice. And I've been so fortunate to have great mentors and but sometimes you have to turn all that off um, and trust that you have the answers that you know and if it's not exactly right um, that's going to be part of the fire in your journey and so I feel like I didn't get to that point in fact I know I didn't until my mid-40s and so if I had if I had known that when I was 18 or 20 or 22 and didn't always look outside myself for all the answers, I, things, things would have been different. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm so fortunate for the journey that I've had, but I think I would have 
gotten more from that journey and done more good with that journey if I had trusted that inner voice. Well, you know, when you first started talking about your story, I wrote down, and maybe you didn't realize you did this, but you said the word reluctant Mm. just about five times when you were just (laughs) describing your journey. And, And you're closing your story with me today about how that confidence, if you had just been a little bit more confident, I would say as a person who has admired you and has um, envied the courage that you've had, I think that your confidence and came just at the right time. Mm-hmm. And you are, you have demonstrated to all of us that no leader is a good leader without a moral compass and the courage to do the right thing, even if it means doing the right thing without a safety plan. Um, Without a paycheck and a safety plan, do better. I, I mean, I should have, I should have had a better plan for that. That's for sure. But you know, lessons learned. Lessons learned. That's all right. But sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. I know that there are a lot of people out there listening to this who have probably been struggling with this thought of I'm not connected to the work, or I'm not getting along with my leaders, or this is just not a good fit. But I can't leave, and I don't know what to do. I hope that this has really inspired. Um, listeners who may be in that situation to say, you have to be reflective of who you are as a leader, what are your values, and what is your moral compass, and let that guide you to that right decision. Hope, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Now we can stop and you can go back and prepare for that hurricane coming. (laughs) Right, right. Let's hope there won't be... uh... The kind of things we've seen in the past, but we'll we'll do fine. We're a resilient bunch down here. Would you like to tell the listeners where they can find a little bit more information on the Yellow House? So, if you are curious about Yellow House, you we you can go to our website, which is yellowhouseart.org. Uh, we also have a pretty active social media presence on Facebook and Instagram, and um, those are pretty dynamic platforms for us where we're sharing what we're doing, but also channeling um, sort of community responses into it. So um, yeah, come and follow us. We'd love it. Thank you. Thank you, Hope. Thank you so much for joining us for Leadership Uncensored, Episode 2, Cultured Milk. Join the next episode of Leadership Uncensored as we explore what it's like to simultaneously be invisible and hyper-visible at work. Many Black leaders find themselves being the only one in the C-suite, on boards, in meetings, at conferences, and at strategic retreats. Black leaders often feel, hooray for me, and why just me, all at the same time. I'm really looking forward to that discussion. I hope that you'll join me. Until then, please be safe and keep others safe by washing your hands, wearing a mask, and practice social distancing.